we're going to have some special guests in this podcast because we have a front door open to air out the apartment, and if if you can hear that, we have some birdies outside. They're really chattery, so we'll have some additional thoughts on this episode from Mr. Bluebird or whatever it is outside. Plus, we picked just the right time to podcast because the neighbors got home, our upstairs neighbors, and they decided to wear their shoes. Yes. They're, they're, they've got their shoes still on. And yeah, they let an elephant in the apartment. And they're cooking, so we got clump, 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 and they're uh, running water all the time in the kitchen. And maybe and if we're lucky, well, they'll have like a bunch of two-year-olds come into the apartment like they did uh, yesterday, where you just heard like a bunch of kids fighting and crying next door. Were there door. kids in the apartment next door? No- oh, you mean yes, next, oh, you yes, mean next yes. door over there? No, huh? no, no. Over here. Well, you oh. can't see why I'm pointing, but... Oh, no. Back there? I didn't realize yes. there were two-year-olds back there. Yes, okay, there I mean- were a bunch of little kids who were just starting up a big fight. And, hello, this is Toxin Billia to me. <laughs> and I am Julie Kearns. <laughs> and I am Aaron Dylan Kearns. And it's May something something. May 17, okay. 2010. But we won't be putting this up on May 17th, but we announced that we recorded it on May 17th. Yes, because we do that, like, we've done that just about every podcast. Every podcast we've announced when we're recording it. Because this is like a part quarantine diary at some points, just with how we gossip about the apartment. It may be for you. Oh. (laughs) But it's not Okay, then. All right. (laughs) No. This is going to be a very uh, special oh episode. Okay, it's a spe- well, I thought you a special episode. I so our other episodes have not been special. This is a special episode for me. Oh, okay. Outside of the world's greatest center, this is an episode about a thing that I've been obsessive over for like a couple of years. Well, the thing is, before we started recording, you said, "Now we've now we're get, this is going to be a really serious episode," and I was like, "Wait, wait, wait! What do you mean this episode is going to be serious?" Our other episodes should have been serious as well. We did two great Salomis this, you know, last week, and I wanted that those to be just really exploring the beauty and wonder of those great films. And now, and you joked all the way through those, and now, uh, now all of a sudden we have to get serious. This is for you, well, because this is your episode. Yes, it is. Okay, yes. Yes. But you haven't mentioned what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what is quite possibly one of the least documented film movements on the American side of the web. You look up this film movement, and you don't really get that much about it. We're talking about Soviet necrorealism, and more specifically, its leading director, Yevgeny Yufit. Necro-realism. I mean, it sounds bad. No, Necro-realism. Well, you're, you're saying it wrong, first of all. You're saying realism. Necro- realism. Necro-realism. Yes, Necro- it's not realism. Realism. <laughs> it's such a tongue twister, yeah. isn't it? One of the things I wanted to talk about as we get started is the lie of spontaneity. As an artist, let me ask you. Just how spontaneous is it when you go out and film something? Now, I'm not talking about how you frame a shot, like when you make decisions as to framing shots and things like this. You pick up a camera. That right there is an absence of spontaneity. You go to a canvas, 
and you sit there and look at it and decide what to paint. Now, let's say you just splatter something on it. Yes, you can call that spontaneity, but you have your paintbrush and you've got your canvas and you've got your experience behind you. And usually, when you're talking especially about money, you're talking about some kind of plan because art costs money. It's expensive. Every kind of art costs money. And if it doesn't specifically cost you money, it costs you time. I'm doing this because of the way Ufitz films have been described when they first started out and all the myths about them. Oh, and, and the way it's still handled now. Like, when you look up stuff about it, like, if you don't dig deeply enough, you get a sort of misinformed image about the necrorealist movement. Completely misinformed, where if you were just going out and you were looking up, okay, what is necrorealism? I'm going to say that over and over. What's wrong with me? Necrorealism. It's, it's Salome all over again. Necrorealism. So the thing is, you look up necrorealism on Google, and what you're going to get is with Ufit is there you're going to find mostly a couple of paragraphs here and there about how they, they ran around. What you get when you look it up really is you get a couple of things, and I actually thought we were going to get into this later, but the image that you get of necrorealism from a few things that you could find, like videos articles and stuff like that if you don't dig deeply enough you just get these things where it's like oh they're just a bunch of drunk crazy russians running around like there isn't enough of those in soviet russia you know they all have vodka they all have fur hats they, they make all... it sound all very spontaneous where they were uh, you know chaotic happenings where everything is the result and nothing but the result of vodka crazed individuals just going out and shocking trying to shock people yeah and yet we have ended up with a lot of material. That looks like it has more fun put into it than a bunch of drunk dudes. Well, yeah, and you eventually have. It wasn't supposed to be a, a, quote, movement, end quote. They didn't want that because they were working against a certain aesthetic. They did not write a manifesto. But they did tons of films, and you have repeated elements from film to film. They went out there, and they did what they did with a plan. And you know that. As a skeptical artist, when I read how this was all just unplanned, as an artist, I sit there and go, ah, I don't think so. When you look at the films on their own, the films that you could find on the surface level, they have paintings involved. They have very specifically done tile cards. They have a very specific aesthetic that they aim toward. When you look deeper into it, you realize that the films that you can find with Ufit, those were just barely the ice cap of things, because when it was at the early stages, when it was more, you know, what people thought of as being this free-form craziness or whatever, you had a lot of filmmakers involved. The thing is, those films, from what I can tell, were never digitally transferred. They were never really effectively archived. From what I read, you did have, before the films were done, they did do some purely staged events that were not filmed. Yeah, performance art. Yeah. I don't know how many they did of those before they started archiving. And it's not just an archive. It's not just the camera pointed and this is what we did. It's specifically made for film what they're doing. This is specifically made for film and it's costly. Even if it's just 16 millimeter. Or Super 8 depending or on the Super source. Or Super 8. Even if it's just that, it's costly in materials, in editing time, and just energy. It's not spontaneous to sit down 
at an editing machine and edit. Not, not at all. When you put material together, you're shaping it. And when you're out wearing costumes and makeup, this is not spontaneous. Even a bottle of ketchup in theater is not spontaneous. Believe me, I worked in theater for years. It's difficult. Any little thing is going to be a trial. You've got people, they're dressed up, They've got makeup on. These are not spontaneous events. Now, you may have spontaneous happenings within these events. I think one of the problems is people, when they see something that looks kind of easy, they think spontaneous. They don't realize the amount of work that goes into it, especially with something like this. We did a necrorealist-inspired film with Winter Sports. And with that one even, you know, it looks like, you know, it's a short five-minute movie. Most of the stuff in that film took at least a couple of weeks in advance to really set up. Well, you were talking about it for weeks as far as, okay, how do, we, how do I do the mask for it? We went through all the planning stages with the mask, deciding what mask to get, talking about what that mask was going to end up represent in a person's mind, so having to decide against certain masks and going for a mask that would not be problematic in any way. We were going back and forth on if we should just have the plain panda bear, but there was the issue that with panda bears, you have the connection with China. And, and with COVID-19, with all the racism that's been going on, it was like, what's going to happen with our doing a panda bear mask? Because those are questions that you ask yourself when you're in the planning stages for doing something theatrical. You examine every little aspect. This is even the most simple stuff. Uh-huh. There's still a process. There's still a process. Like for your other film, Kafka Supermarket, those masks were quite elaborate in comparison. Of course, no one's going to take a look at that and think spontaneous per se, but they may not realize just the amount of work that went into it beforehand and all the discussions. That was just my beef that I had as I was reading all this stuff that was written on UFIT. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the drinking goes, now that's that's a completely different issue. What so what is, is necrorealism? Necrorealism was a sort of movement that formed in Russia just around the fall of the Soviet Union. It started off in Leningrad, known, now known as St. Petersburg, and the exact origin points of it are kind of iffy, because you have different sources. Uh, some say it began as a performance art kind of thing, some say that it explicitly began with film, or more specifically with Yevgeny Yufit's own personal career in art making, because Yevgeny Yufit he started off as a painter. Yevgeny Ufit was born in the 1960s. He was the son of Georgi Ufit. Georgi Ufit uh, was a scientist who worked in radio engineering and meteorology, and he was known for creating computers that utilized microwave technology. From what I heard, he started off as a painter, and he also had background in photography. So Yevgeny Ufit, um, he did his artwork... But, depending on the source, he either started making necrorealist shorts with a group of friends of his, you know, which sort of feeds into the whole false rumor about, you know... Uh, We're just a bunch of guys. We got just a bunch drunk, of bros. And one of us said, let's put on a, a white coat. Here, let's wear right this here. makeup to let's make us look like dead bodies. Oh, yeah, exactly. But um, uh -huh. the other source, which seems to be the one that's closer to reality, is that... um. 
he was involved with a small group of artists in Leningrad who started doing performance art. And their performance art was pretty morbid by nature. They would dress up in these strange uniforms that were sort of like mockeries of Soviet film archetypes. They would dress up in medical smocks, sailor uniforms, stuff like that, and they would act out this sort of very aggressive, rambunctious performance art where they would either basically beat the hell out of each other or uh, sort of pretend, uh, pretend to do these strange, elaborate murders and suicides or, in some cases, even bizarre sexual acts. There's a lot of this, uh, the absurd involved yeah. and the last couple of years my familiarity has been kind of looking over your shoulder i did not on any self-initiative get into these films then you suggested doing the podcast on it and i was like yeah we're, i had already said you know we need to do things that you are really interested in stuff that's in my personal repertoire pretty much so I did a crash course for myself the past two weeks. I've got notes that I made to describe them because of the descriptions that we get of them online are really, it's the same thing over and over again. Yeah. They ran around and fell down. But also, when you look it up, they always tend to equate it with socialism is falling apart, and that's really the wrong way to describe it. It's a response to totalitarianism. Yeah, it was a response to the strict censors of the Soviet Union, which wasn't a problem with socialism or communism even. It was a problem with the fact that the Soviet Union was a dictatorship. That now, I thought when I was watching these film shorts is the only way that I could respond to them initially was to look at it as kind of punk. But going back to the 1970s, that's well, where it made like that. sense to me. And punk was actually political. It was more an attitude in art, music, to commercialism yeah. and the way politics were moving in the time. They were moving towards Reagan, moving towards Thatcher, and it was horrifying. And you had a recession going on that had happened in 1975. It was just a, a oh, yeah. sour time to live in. So I'm honestly kind of surprised at this point how right now you have the whole popularity of quarantine filmmaking. I'm surprised that in live quarantine filmmaking, you don't have a sort of quarantine-era necro-realist revival, even if it's not an intentional revival, in the United States, like a revival of that sort of ideology, that sort of absurdism. But necro-realism was not just a response to that. They concentrate on the human relationship with nature, mm -hmm. but it's male relationships. It's father to son. It's the whole shebang there possible the, homosexuality no no none of that actually like they said well the, in the features you almost have that no you don't really uh-uh i sent you an essay by thomas campbell homosexuality as used as a device in these films and that's what it's used at i was looking at it and thinking this is partly just the psyche working out male issues what is it to be a guy and in russia i am in america I am a woman. As a human, you can empathize and sim sympathize. You can put yourself in a lot of different places just from basic emotions and understand what other people experience. At the same time, I had some hesitancy when we were watching these films because I was not in Soviet Union at the time. And what else was going on? Yeah. Okay, that contributed to this. I also felt just watching it 
and with the absence of women, they had no women until Vladimir Mosloff. Well, actually, you technically had one in spring, but yes, um, you did. You had and one Knights of Heaven. Of These were men, and I felt like there's something going on here, perhaps with male relationships, working those out. And what was expected of men in the Soviet Union that they were retaliating against? I've seen other people there instead writing about death. All death became heroic. Everything was committed to the state. I was reading some retaliation against that, and which is, an, I guess, kind of like taking back a sort of individualism. They use state films where you have, against all this morbidity and fran- frantic activity, then you'll, they'll pop in some of these hyper-patriotic... You know that they're what they're coming from. You know they're coming from old Soviet films. They would use a sort of documentary-type footage depicting ships, and sort of Smiling idyllic children, idyllic Soviet and, youth and like an elderly, you know, Soviet woman lo- looking up as you see a bunch of doves flying in the air. And it's not going to be so too different, really, from especially the 1950s and McCarthyism here in the United States, where at the same time you had all these films being made, you know, the happy American, smiley Americans going to church, going shopping. Now it's all going shopping. There's also, there's a spiritual aspect that they were honoring here in a way. These are really interesting films that can be off-putting at first. Later, good Lord, the features, the absolute breathtaking photography, every single frame. Oh, it's amazing. You could tell that Yevgeny was really precise on the angles because you never really have a throwaway angle anywhere. No, and the use of shadow and light, the window shots that he would get, uh, where you would have part of the room and part of the outside. I've never seen window shots like that in my life. The way the shadows he handled were like borderline like Kurosawa-esque, like how he would handle black and white in his films. Really, I didn't notice that. I they remind me that. a little bit of like how I would see some shadow stuff be used in films like Seven Samurai and stuff like that, like during <laughs> the night scenes. Before we give descriptions of the films, let's talk about the two phases of Soviet necorealism, because there were actually two distinct phases, specifically with Yevgeny Yufin, well, because he's the director who we're going to discuss, and he's the one also whose work is the most readily available. You have the first phase... The roots are kind of ambiguous because you have some saying that it was purely a product of Yevgeny's own imagination, while others say it was the work of a collective performance art. Either way, in 1984, Yevgeny Yufit filmed the movie Werewolf Orderlies, which was the first necorealist film that was directed by Yevgeny Yufit. In 1985, he established the studio Mazalala Film. We know it's composed of two words. The first word apparently means something to do with unconsciousness, sleeping. If you watch Ufit's films, you can see where that would play into it. And the second word was just a child's nonsense word, la-la. In the same sort of vein as uh, how Dadaism was titled. Mm-hmm. Mazala film, it was actually the first independent Russian film studio. Yevgeny produces films from Mazala film, and several other directors also. Yevgeny would do these independent movies that are basically on the outer edge of the Soviet film industry until the late 80s after he directed his short film Fortitude. Around that point, his interest started to shift and he wanted to establish his own film in the main sort of Soviet film canon and get proper financing for his films. 
It was claimed that most of his early shorts were shot on Super 8, some also say uh, 16mm, but mm -hmm. the first film that was for certain shot on 16mm was Knights of Heaven. Knights of Heaven was very different from how he did his earlier short films, because his early short films... What kind of knights is that? Uh, K-N. Yeah. Knights of Heaven. It's not about nocturnal paradise or whatever. Yevgeny Ufit's early films from between 84 and 89 were purely absurdist dark comedy. They were morbid, they were bleak, ugly, but there was a sense of very warped wit to them. They were kind of like these old silent film antics where people get really beaten up. Nobody is hurt. Everybody's all right. Where somebody gets really, really hurt, but they look just fine afterwards, especially with these early film comedies. Mm -hmm. Where instead, these, it's like, you get beaten up, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like... But the deaths oh, are just you, sort of played off like, all right. You, you get you get hit, you're, you're gone. And they would even have comical music accompanying these shorts. Or they, just other music. Yeah, um, they did, would have like um, old sort of folky Soviet tunes. Oh, well, when did the music that was written specifically for them enter? Um, that was with one movie, with uh, Woodcutter, which... Oh, well, that was just that one movie? Okay. Yes. All right. With Woodcutter... The soundtrack in that film was comprised of a song, Fat Wax, which was a collective uh, composition by Oleg Kotelnikov and Yevgeny Yufit himself. They wrote the lyrics, and it was apparently sung to the tune of a song called Happy Neighbor. But wasn't it played during the performance? It wasn't on the tape itself. It wasn't on the film itself, The Stripe. I actually don't know. I thought that's what I read, that it was played along with it. Otherwise, we would have it on yeah. YouTube. It would be on there. I think I read that it was played along with it in, in showings of the film. Either way, there's basically no archival stuff out there of this song existing. It only exists in the print of Woodcard that you can see right now. I can't even really find any evidence about the existence of the song Happy, uh, Happy Neighbor, which is what the song was apparently made as like a sort of morbid parody of. And now you were going to talk about the second phase? Yes. These early films had a very warped sense of black comedy, but underneath it all, there was a sense of absurdism. Around the late 80s into the 90s, the movement remained absurdist, but it turned to a sort of different form of absurdism. Yevgeny Yufit would join this film academy for experimental directors. He and the other necrorealists joined, and he was the only necrorealist director to graduate from his college. He was personally tutored by several Soviet directors. Knights of Heaven was his first collaboration with actor, director, and co-writer Vladimir Maslov. I keep forgetting that. I keep thinking Daddy, Father Frost is Dead as being the first time that they worked together. Is that the first time that he co-directed with yes. him? Yes. And it was also the first time he acted. And man, he is fantastic. He has a very distinct uh, presence. The moment that he enters the scene, you get theater yes. just oozing from the film. It's so, beautiful. The reason why that is, is um, Vladimir Maslov was actually um, 20 years older than Ufit, and he had a history in theater and acting. He graduated from an actor's academy, and for a long time, he directed an experimental puppet theater, and he would do these puppet renditions of plays by Ionesco and Samuel Beckett. So, he was actually uh, the chief director of the Leningrad Bolshoi Puppet Theater. That's the one. And in 1964, he graduated from the acting department of the Faculty of Dramatic Art of LGITMIK. We, we did a Google Translate of a Russian 
Wikipedia article. Yeah, on it. Since 1962, it was known as the Leningrad State Institute of Theater, Music, and Cinematography. Now we know what it means. Ah! L-G-I-T-M-I-K. So either way, Vladimir Maslov had a great deal of experience with him already, you know, in regards to theater and experimental stuff. He was an absurdist. When Vladimir Maslov came into the picture, he definitely... Oh, what is it? Which are the two absurdists I started you off on when you were a 10-year-old baby. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I sat down with you with Ionesco and started re- reading first Ionesco. First, I'd uh, handed you Ionesco, and I had you read back and forth with me. We would do readings from Ionesco, and then we did Beckett. You also had me watching an animated version of his play Rhinoceros. You talk about more recent influences on your work. I forget one that you were talking about. You were talking about The World's Greatest Sinner, how it was such a major influence for The Counting Man that you did. I can see where you would say that that was an influence. At the same time, it came straight out of all that Beckett work that I had done with you. My prioritizations with what I would remember are really stupid. I don't know why, but I'm just a complete idiot when it comes to memories like that. Well, no, I think what it is is that it was so normal. I think that we are sitting down and doing these things, doing these readings, and it just kind of sunk into the background and you just really didn't think about it much after that. We sat there and I watched Samuel Beckett's film with you. I remember doing that several times. When I'd finished The County Man, you put film on for me and I realized, oh yeah. wait, I accidentally That's ripped true. this off. That's true. You did not watch Beckett's film until after you had done The County no, Man. No, no, no. I probably saw it when I was like younger, but I didn't remember anything about it until as a teenager. What was freaky was the stuff that I had done in theater that you ended up accidentally redoing little bits tiny little bits and parts that I was surprised at it was like because I'd never talked to you about some of the things I had done in theater that had entirely to do with masks and which we stopped tried to stop using I initially was using masks in theater and it was like no actors do not like masks Um, so I stopped writing for masks but the first thing that you did was this giant head mask in just about every other film project I do in some way or another there's a character of a huge deformed head, which was exactly like one of the plays that you did. I don't have a poster of this huge head that this person wore in Zurama. That was a play that you did. Yeah, uh, one of my plays. And then you came up with the, the counting man having this person with this huge head. And I thought that was so funny. You were young. I had never discussed my theater work with you. We had read Beckett and Ionesco, but I'd never talked about my work in theater. You had never read any of my theater, and you still haven't read any of my theater work. Yeah, but um, like I was saying, Maslov had experience in absurdist theater. And when he came into the picture, he started off as the co-writer... For Knights of Heaven, he wrote a dialogue for that film, and that film, it's not like the later features, but it is the most Tarkovsky-feeling thing you could imagine. But that was the only one. I expected them from then on to go into a Tarkovsky vein, because that the Tarkovsky element was so strong there, and it never appears again. Not as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's really strange, Ellie, because it feels like Stalker, and it came out the year that Tarkovsky was announced as dead. And concerning the fact that one of the later films is called <laughs> Daddy, <laughs> Father Frost is dead, it may as well have been called Comrade, Tarkovsky is dead. So, Did it really? Yeah, that's what he said. Mm, I thought it came out like a couple of years after. Let me go so. check. Uh, he died in 1986. 
Well, that point went down the toilet. We can still call the film Comrade Tarkovsky's Dead, though, because it really does feel like that. You know, it feels like the necrorealist memorial spot for Tarkovsky. It totally feels like it. I really get a sense of, the, of, you remember the writer from Stalker? Oh, yes. I feel like they were recapturing especially the writer. I do think Vladimir Maslov acts in that film. No, he played the guy who was um, okay, really? raped by the other oh. characters. Oh, oh. So right. Vladimir Maslov, he co-wrote that film and he did act in it. But his appearance, his presence in Necrorealism wasn't until after Yevgeny Yufit graduated from this film academy and he did the feature film Daddy, Father Frost is Dead. Sometimes uh, translated as Santa Claus is Dead. Yes, because Father Frost is essentially um, the Russian Santa Claus. That film, Vladimir Maslov wrote the script. He didn't just co-write it, but he wrote the whole thing. He co-directed it with Yufit. And he acted in it with a real standout role as this Dennis character. He stands out as an ex suddenly exceptional character in Ufit's work. Mm -hmm. He shows up, and with this film, you go, oh, things are getting different here, and we have a very different kind of character here as well. Yeah. The deal with these later films is they're still absurdist, but Vladimir Maslov, he wrote the films. And there's a very different sense of absurdism in it. It's not dark comedy anymore as much as it is just general theatric absurdism, because you have the themes of necrorealism, because you have the inclusions of murder, suicide, the undead to some extent, because they depict what could best be described as the undead, because you have these characters who sort of infinitely commit suicide, kill each other, make these weird Rube Goldberg self-fulfilling Darwin Award contraptions, but they're framed in a different manner from the Necrorealist shorts that were dark comedy. These had a very different tone to them. You know what it reminds me of? You know what <clears throat> makes me think of? Both of them brought entirely different things to the table. Yes. Maslow, the minute he enters, you've got a, a very different intelligence at work here. Yeah. Ufit would have wanted that, or else he wouldn't have been working with him. Oh, yeah. It also reminds me of what happens when you simply grow older sometimes. Yeah. You start out, you do work in one way, and then you get older and you do it differently. Mm -hmm. You have a kind of a self-examination here of desire to express some of that self-examination. What is this work about? What's go really going on here? It still has the kind of magic of that obscurity the uh, earlier films have, but, but you feel the intelligence behind it. And I want to talk about that, especially when we get to the wooden, the wooden room. room. Because I was just going to say that self-examination, you brought that up in regards to the wooden room because of what that film is about. But I want to talk about them chronologically. Yeah, when do we, well, get we are. To we're going to talk about chronologically. Okay. I'm just getting the two waves out of the way. All right. So the later films are absurdist. They're still absurdist, but they're a very more kind of... Uh, I hate to use the term sophisticated because it's, it's, I don't want to put down the earlier films. I keep wanting to say that the later work is more humane. When that... It's not the thing, because it's not that the earlier works aren't humane. You can have vi violence pointing out problems. It's a humane film because of the material that it's focused upon, and it's trying to get people to think about and feel. So I can't really say that these are more humane films, but there's something about them that is, they're more subtle, oh, dramatically more subtle. 
they have more of a dramatic tension to them. They have a more... Oh, no, the tension is already there with the earlier ones. But you they're have... more like a dramatic sort of slow burn kind of tension. It's a because... slow burn tension. Yeah. Uh, the other... It goes from silent, absurdist comedy to uh, the films that Bunel made during the sound, you know, during sound, like with uh, Exterminating Angel, maybe? Mm. I just mean it the intention where it's like, it's surrealist and it's absurdist, mm. but it has more of that kind of intention to it, whereas the early shorts were more inspired by silent comedy and early experimental yeah. surrealist filmmaking, where they're more yeah. about montage and the distortion of stock footage and stuff like that whereas the other films they're more driven from a sort of abstracted narrative would you say they're less ironic yeah and they have less of like the kind of punk anger going of them uh they have like a, a sense of rebellion True. To them. they're less punk rock and more like counterculture philosophy in the later films you get very much is the unexamined life worth living and the later films also have the sort of sense of decay to them, which really comes into play of some of the narratives, where there's like the sense of decay, especially the theme of stuff becoming part of the earth again. There is the whole conflict of humans and nature that yeah. is throughout this work. Yeah. These are very ecological works in a way, as far as place of humans in nature. It's really almost like the mirrored opposite of Japanese cyberpunk with some of the themes of that movement has. They both have the same end goal because both movements yes. essentially involve the rapid descent into entropy where they both have that going on. Japanese cyberpunk, especially when you have directors like Shinya Tsukamoto and the, the woman who acted in Tetsuo the Iron Man, I forgot her name. Mm -hmm. She was also a director and she, and she directed Feeder and several films. Mm -hmm. And Shosen Fukui also. They have the element of rapid technological advancement destroying the earth, destroying mankind, and leading to a sort of insane, fast-paced technological entropy. Whereas with necrorealism, there's the technological stuff in some cases, but it's more like if technology is involved, it's technology causing mankind to decay back into the earth, where technology fails and mankind tries to excel itself but instead rots back into the earth as part of this forced acceleration. You also have that sense when science isn't involved. I remember one time I was looking at it, I was watching the films, and I was thinking, you know, none of this would be happening if they were all out having to reap the fields for their food. <laughs> yeah. And by that, I mean a conflict with nature. Yeah. Where do I belong with nature? So instead, it's presented through wood. Wood is everywhere in these oh, films. Oh, yes. I mean, when science and even does come into play, all the machines that they have are made out of wood. And then they try to meld with wood finally at one point. Yes. And that does not go very well. And most of the but suicide contraptions are made of wood. They're made out of wood. With all that out of the way, let's get to the synopsis let's of these get, films. Let's, okay. So, Werewolf Orderlies is the first one. 1984, it's a film of about three minutes in length. A sailor gets off a train. He's carrying a saw. Right there, we've got wood. A hacksaw. He walks into the snowy woods. Orderlies follow him. Some sources say that they're werewolf orderlies, but it's never really specified because there's no, like, title cards in this film, like, to describe things. There are people wildly throwing snow around with shovels. He lights a fire at the bottom of a tree. He climbs the tree and jumps into a blanket that the orderlies hold out for him. They carry him away, but we can't see him when they lay the blanket down, and they beat at it. We are then shown his head, and it's bloodied. 
he appears to be dead. We are then shown old nationalistic footage of a ship. This short is accompanied by the weirdest sort of 60s to 50s lounge jazz you can imagine. It sounds like a weird alternate dimension version of the Addams Family theme. They had it where they would play music while showing the films. Uh -huh. I believe if that was the original track that they would play. With this film, they used the Mazala film logo, even though Mazala film was actually established. And that logo wasn't done until 1987. It was probably added in later on. There's an altered version of the logo that appears in the next film, Woodcutter, which is drawn by Yufit himself. Sources claim that the opening of the film, of the sailor walking around the hacksaw, was filmed from one of the Necrorealists' early performance art things. And the only source of that really is the article that was written by The White Review. The White Review? Yeah. Oh, okay, I remember I read that one. Yeah. Do you want me to read the description from the IIFR? Oh, or... sure, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um... A young sailor steps down from a local train. He goes to a nearby forest, which is full of strange men in medical uniforms behaving in an absurd and eccentric manner. The sailor falls under their influence and masochistically gives himself up to them, only to be disemboweled by werewolf orderlies. The sailor's last unconscious image is a white ship sailing towards the horizon, a Soviet symbol for happiness and joy. Werewolf Orderlies is the first of Ufit's films in which the necrorealist aesthetics of social grotesque and black humor appear. And the IIFR, they had done a retrospective on Ufit. It's the International Film Festival Rotterdam. On to Woodcutter from 1985. It's a year later. This is my favorite of the early shorts. Eight minutes. A room with photos on the wall. Music is put on. A recording is begun. No sound as a man discusses the things that hang from the wall that look like teddy bears. I never can really tell what they are. are they I think teddy? they were teddy bears, actually. You have teddy okay. bears and a couple of dolls. And then and, you've got dolls as well. And the, and the walls are lined with photos. Now, originally, I thought the photos depicted real atrocities, but they're actually of the actors. necrorealist actors and yes. necrorealist makeup because they would do this makeup based on a medical textbook that they found where it showed these photos of old corpses where they would do the makeup to resemble it where they used tomato paste they would puff out the cheeks with cotton and they would wrap up the actors in bandages it's really effective makeup especially in black and white you know what that also reminds me of i wrote about this once many years ago i had something in a thing that i wrote about where i was reminded of when i was a kid from medical books my horror when I was a child, looking at these medical photos. Yeah. Also, my horror as a child, I was in a situation like when I was five years of age where I was around somebody who had all these horrible photos of murders and things up on the wall. That kind of hung around so that when I was a teenager, when I was downtown, there was a tattoo parlor, and it had all these photos in the windows of all these dead bodies, people who had been killed. And that grotesquery, that black and white, the high contrast. It was riveting, but it was also appalling. Why are these on display like that? It was the same kind of appalling thing that once when we were traveling through Texas, before, long before you were born, we stopped at a restaurant, your dad and I, and they had pictures in the restaurant of all these outlaws 
who had been hung. You're at this table, you're ordering your food, and you look up and you see, oh my goodness, these are what? Dead people. These are dead people who are sitting next to you. These faces of these dead people either hanging or they were taken down and they were put on display for the town. They were put in windows. These are all sitting next to the table. That was the first time I had ever been to Texas. It was like, oh my God, what is, this is Texas? This, I guess <laughs> this is Texas. And one of the um, other things to note in regards to the medical textbook is in well, the book... I was going to carry it around to you. Oh. I was going to get into you next. So okay. I, I had that same, just how horrifying it was. It was more the way they were depicted in these medical textbooks, this stark photography. The person is taken away. The soul is stripped from them. They're alive, but it's just their condition. The medical textbooks I'm talking about, they weren't showing cadavers. They were showing different medical conditions so that you're not looking at a person who has been affected by this. You, you don't see their life. You don't see anything they've done. All that exists and remains of them is this condition. And it reminded me of one time when you went in to get your teeth cleaned when you were uh, a little kid. Oh, God, this. And you came home, and I was so mad about this. This was one of their cleaning texts that I had not seen yet. I later got her, and I found that she was just as clueless with me. She did not have a good rapport, let me put it this way. What she did with you is to impress upon you the importance of cleaning your teeth. She got out a book and showed you pictures of people with terrible gum disease. And you were a child. I heard about this afterwards. And you came home, you were terrified when you told me about the medical book with the uh, necrorealism films. Oh, yes. I was reminded of your absolute horror when you came home from the dentist that day and told me what she had shown to you. And I was infuriated that she would do this. And also, I was reflecting on my own horror from when I was a child and seeing these photos of just people's conditions with the humanity stripped away. I felt like this was not something to do with a child, to sit there and just show them these point-blank photographs. That's not what you do. One more thing I would like to mention is, in regards to the medical textbook that Yevgeny Youth had used, the way the book was formatted, the photos that they would show of the cadavers, they weren't depicted as being sideways. They put the photos upright so that it almost looked like the corpses were standing. It's been hypothesized to some extent that this may have also influenced the whole theme of the undead with how it almost looked like this book would display morbid dancing corpses because some of them would have their legs in odd positions. There's one photo that depicts like a sort of molded corpse where it looks like it's in the middle of some kind of strange dance. It's lying down on its side, but the way its photo's positioned, it looks like a bizarre dance. You also have a photo of a man hung against a door, which also looks like a strange dance. They all look like these bizarre sort of dances almost. But also, again, once again, you've got these photographs with the humanity of the person involved is gone. It is the form under examination. And somebody could say, well, once the spirit leaves the body, once a person is dead, then that's all. It's meaningless matter. But it's very disturbing because this was a person. You know what I'm reminded of here? You've got this focus on this kind of morbidity, my own becoming alert to it when I was a child, and then your becoming alert to it and that kind of haunting that it can have. What happened with Toby Hooper and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you have the same kind of thing when you read about his history to a certain extent where when they were doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the whole opening idea of showing 
an autopsy, the cadaver and the draining of the blood. You had these art pieces that are made out of dead things, this morbidity. And then you had the same thing with David Lynch in his home. You remember? He would make these sculptures from dead uh, bugs and stuff like that. Well, he would, yeah, he would put dead things down there and just let them decay to see the different stages of decay what it went through and there was also allegedly a delayed scene in Eraserhead where Jack Nance's character played with the corpse of a cat and yeah. it's been rumored that the cat corpse was a real dead cat uh-huh. that they found on the street we have the opening of Woodcutter with Yevgeny in this room and also this room was apparently Mazala Film Studio the film opens and it's with this room and the teddy bears on the wall the dolls as well now Cut to a man in snow, and absurd comic music begins as he stumbles along, people running behind him. They run back through the woods and knock him down, and they put a rope around his leg and drag him off. This footage is also really sped up, so it really does look like a silent Yeah, all the silent, yeah, the silence are like this. We see a photograph of an autopsy table. We get the title card, Woodcutter. Mm -hmm. And it's actually drawn by Yevgeny Yufit himself. The art resembles his paintings. And another little fun thing about these movies is with the Necrealist films, with the earlier ones, they would draw all the titles out on the sides of buildings in chalk. So the title cards were all essentially graffiti. And then we go to an old stock footage shot of men in the kind of uniforms that they used to wear in theater that you would see from old theaters with the tails, the long tails, yes. right? And they're standing in a line. Then we go back to Ufit's world. Oh, wait. There's actually, before that, there's also a shot of several suited men watching, like they're watching the film play out. Exactly. They're watching. Then a man is thrown from a balcony and is beaten by others in the snow. Title card. Despite his fall from a great height, he seemed to function quite well. Then cut to a body hanging from a tree, people running about in the woods beating each other. The body is dropped down, and a person comes climbing down out of the tree. The person runs off with the body and lays the body on railroad tracks. A train comes by. Title card. Attempts to save him were made. More fighting in the snow. Another title card. A pseudo-tourist, Lucer, was on an excursion in the woods, and... That is one of the problems with the title cards, is that the tr- Russian translation is lacking. This is a recurring theme when it comes to Russian yeah. experimental film. You don't really have, like, you don't have criterion remastering these movies or no. anything. Man stumbles through the woods with a fake body. He wears shorts. People attack him and steal the body from him. Title card. In the meantime, in the South, a weird animal thing beset with bugs is shown. I think it's a dead snake. Then another title card. Up north, we see a man sitting in the snow. A man comes up dragging the body. A fight ensues. Many more men join the fight. We see a bear in a cage. Pig carcasses. Keep this one shot in mind because it's shot at this sort of almost farm-like location. Mm -hmm. This certain shoot actually does come back up in later films. Title card. And in the central part, back to the film, a boar. B-O-A-R. A man and man dressed as a woman wildly dance. And there's also a woman hanging from a doorway in the same room. Title card. But that was the pseudo-tourist double, a werewolf. The real tourist decided to hide in the woods and devote his life to woodcutting. A man wrapped in ropes, in his shorts, head bandaged, stumbles through the woods. Title card. 
Three years later, his mission was not forgotten. Back to the film. Men run wildly through the woods and fight. The orderlies as well. We see then old stock footage of doves ascending. Old footage of smiling school children. And an old woman sighs and shakes her head. These films are two years apart. The first one is in 84. This is in 85. And you've got themes that are starting to appear. Mm-hmm. More than just the beating of bodies. You know, the beating the of... You've got definite themes. The way they would use montage, they use stock footage in a very certain way. It also sort of resembles early Dadaist film that way. Early Dadaist film, you've got total surrealism, and you're not looking at something that's really supposed to make sense. Mm -hmm. But this is is a response. You go go from that to the doves ascending and the children smiling in contrast with, yeah, that idealism in contrast with what we've just seen. The idyllic Soviet image. Now, Mm -hmm. there's one thing that I find to be interesting about Woodcutter, the opening of a film where Yevgeny Ufid himself is acting as the man in the opening in the room. Right, he is. So... What I believe is this film was made around the time their film briefly got confiscated. It sounds like their shoot was confiscated when they were filming the stuff with the dummy. And what I think happened was after they got their film back, the opening was shot almost as like a sort of satirization of the response of the Russian public to the Necrorealist movement because the Necrorealists did appear... In Russian media around this time, they would appear on TV and people would try to psychologically analyze them from these films. And there was this reaction. So I think that the opening was filmed almost as a sort of satirization because you have Mazala Film, Mazala film Studios, Yevgeny Ufit dressed up in this very formal uniform, you know, which is basically nothing like how any of the other characters dress. He doesn't even really look all that disheveled. The only thing he has is a bullet wound on his head and a trail of blood coming from the side of his mouth. And so I think to some extent this was almost filmed as a satirization of the way the general public reacted okay. to the early Necrorealist films. Okay. And another thing is these first two films have an interesting recurring theme with werewolves. Specifically werewolves that do things that, were- that you would never really associate with werewolves. There's nothing in the film itself to give any idea of werewolves. Yes. The only thing that you get that from is from the title. And actually, as people describe it, Ufit is the one who brought the zombie idea to Russia. Now, I don't know if enough about Russian film to say if that's true or not. The undead Mm -hmm. arrive. That's one of the things that I'm talking about that's being alluded to with the whole unconscious element of the first word in his independent studio. Yes. With the the werewolf stuff all being brought up, while there's no werewolves in the film, Yevgeny Ufit's artwork almost has a kind of wolfman-like vibe to it. Most of the necrorealists would paint humans. In the logo for Mazala film, you have this painting depicting two... Soviet sailors in a swamp of reeds. One has uh, the mark of a noose around his neck, and the other one has his throat slit. This painting was done as a satirization of, I think it was a Soviet social realist film. I forgot what exactly, but from 1936. Most of these artists would paint humans, whereas Yevgeny Ufit would paint distorted animals. And in Woodcutter, throughout all the title cards, he would have these bizarre creatures that's, I think that if you've got werewolf in the title, that's the important thing. Something that is animal that looks human. Spring is next. We've got a gap of two years there. That's a long time. Uh, spring is from 1987, and that one is 10 minutes long. 
A man on railroad tracks. A man in a uniform and fake beard pulls another man along the railroad by a rope wrapped around his waist. A train passes. The train returns. It apparently runs over the men on the track while the man in uniform screams. Title card. Once upon a time in the suburbs of a big city. Another train. People boarding and disboarding. The men tromping in snow are watched by another man in a striped shirt. He attacks and knocks one down and keeps hitting him. It seems to be the man who was in the military uniform. Title card. The next day, he... Back to the film. A man tromps through the snow. A man beats something. The man tromps through the snow. The man in the striped shirt crawls along, agonized. The man who was tromping through the snow hangs a swing from a tree. We see the crawling military man. The man continues setting up his contraption of the swing between two trees. The military man in the snow. The man climbs onto the contraption between the two trees as the man in the striped shirt crawls up. The man on the swing cuts a rope so that his head bashes into a tree, seemingly killing him. It does kill him. And this is a repeating element that he has. Yes. Yeah. This is actually the first instance of a Yevgeny Ufit film where you have one of these sort of self-fulfilling Darwin Award contraptions that yeah, they make. an odd way to commit suicide. Where yeah. you set up this whole contraption and you commit suicide... And it's typically like with a tree, banging your head into a tree. The military man looks up, and then stock footage of women athletes carrying flags. Go back to the man in his shirt, his face all bloodied and deformed in the snow. Title card. Part 2. Despite the freezing weather, the city dwellers were not discouraged. A monkey dressed as a clown walks out along the men in the theatrical uniforms we briefly saw in Woodcutter. There's a monkey who comes parading through. This isn't even the first instance of footage from Woodcutter that mm -hmm. returns in this film because very briefly in this film also there is a shot of a man with a knife who runs to the camera and then the camera turns and follows him as he runs away. This man, you can see him briefly in Woodcutter with the shot of the two dead pigs, which are being hung from this sort of structure at a barn. The mm -hmm. shoot is at that same barn. You can actually recognize certain elements of it. And it's actually what seems to be footage from... The same shoot that built up some of the scenes in Woodcutter. Cut to two men crawling. Then stock footage of women exercising with hoops on classical stairs. Back to a man with his head wrapped in bandages runs along. And I put a note there where you had said that this was left over from Woodcutter, the pig scene. And you took me and you said, look. And you showed me exactly where this came from. And it was the exact fence and everything else, and it's the exact man. Then, a stock footage. A trapeze artist falls into a net. What does that remind you of? It kind of reminds me of going back to werewolf oh, orderlies oh, yeah. and the man falling from the tree. You're right about that. A man runs through the snow. An airplane. A man runs through the snow and falls and looks up, seeming to look at the old footage of the airplane. Stock footage then of two women smiling and talking. The two men continue crawling. Stock footage of a woman skating. Of a monkey in water. Footage of waves, the same ocean waves that ended Werewolf Orderlies is now shown again. A boy eats grapes. That's again old footage. Back to the movie. The two men crawl. Two men pull themselves up by ropes. A man theatrically stabs himself in the stomach with a knife. Old footage of a young boy, as if he's seen this. Back to four men in a building. A man appears to have been hung, lying on the ground. The two men crawl past him. Title card. Part 3. The Snow Melted Soon.
A man lies on the ground. He has a fake beard. Another man taunts him and pokes him with a stick. He sticks the stick in his mouth. We're intended to get the impression he has rammed it through his body, and yet he still lives. Then we realize it's a rope he is dragging through his body, and he is agonized, writhing. Stock footage of a woman performing exercises on a stage. Back to the men with the rope. Stock footage of men performing as tap dancing women. Like you had earlier, you had the man who was dressed as the woman dancing. Now you have men performing as tap dancing women. Back to the scene with the rope. Then to stock footage of women gymnasts performing on a stage. Stock footage of an old plane. A man appears to watch it. Several men in fast motion run into a wall. It's a long shot of that. A man swings from a tree, hitting at someone. The men hit the wall again. It's a repeat. The man swinging from the tree. The men hit the wall again. A man falls from a boat. He keeps falling into the water. A man keeps screaming. The corpse from Woodcutter is dragged along. The man screams. A car seems to run him over. Title card. The nights become shorter. Birds return to their homeland. Then we see several of the men as if in straight jackets staring at the camera. Perfectly static. No activity. Title card. Part 4. The spring came. A bird. A man smiles and waves at it. The bird again. Title card. And it sunk into the depth of the sea. We are shown the person who is writing the titles as they lie back in bed and look up at the ceiling as if peacefully meditating. And that appears to be a woman. You go through this whole thing and then at the very end we are shown the person who is writing the title cards as if it's poetry. This is the first instance of a Necrorealist film that is completely silent, at least in the version that you can see on YouTube. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, apparently with some of these films, they would play music to them. And you have some footage of that in this one Russian TV broadcast where it not only shows what appears to be Spring being played with its original soundtrack, which was some kind of weird traditional Soviet folk opera, but it also had... Behind-the-scenes footage of Spring, where you saw you've given you some of it. I'm not convinced of that, and I, I told you why I'm not convinced of that. Because they played a weird version of Take Five during the filming of. They had Take Five playing over earlier stuff. It's filming the movie, and then we have this separate thing being played during they're showing a part of the movie. You think that it may be something that was actually in the film. I'm not convinced that it wasn't something that was just part of this documentary. Well, I think more of anything else is that it wasn't a part of the film because the films were all essentially shot silent. I think it's more or less this is the sort of music if it would play at okay. those screenings. Okay, of. all right, I get you. And I think that's the reason why it's silent, but to some extent... Well, it's the, not silent the fi- in, the, I think, in the film. It's not silent I think in the, the documentary. films are more effective without audio. Oh, I think they're much more effective silent. Yeah, these certain It's shorts. transfixing. You don't have anything there to distract you from what's happening on screen. And it's, it's riveting. You don't know what's going to come next. Even if you are familiar with some of the themes, it keeps you completely involved. These shorts work really well silent. I do like the music they include in the first two shorts. Onto suicide warthogs. Or not, suicide monsters, depending on the it title. It depends. Translation. And warthogs doesn't really work because they show the animal at the end and it's not a warthog. It's a hedgehog. It's a hedgehog. Okay, suicide monsters, let's say. 1988. A man boils water. He climbs down into some kind of cistern. The boiling water is thrown on his face by another person. And it's sort of like a weird voluntary act, pretty much. It is a voluntary act. Because the man yeah. lets himself in there and he 
doesn't really fight back. He just sort of waits. Old footage of school children in their athletic outfits walking barefoot. Planes in formation. The children again. The title card for the film, Suicide Monsters. The sun sinking in the sky. A close-up of a man. This is, now, this is some beautiful footage. We observe a house from the outside, and the windows are lit, and it's at night. And it's really nice. Another view of the house through vegetation. Then we are inside the house, and we see a man in bed smoking. Someone comes up and knocks on the window. He opens the window, and they shake hands. We see the pictures of fighter pilots. Then in the window is a prearranged contraption with sharp spikes on a band of rubber that the man outside pulls and releases, killing the man inside. Shot of a dragonfly hanging from a thread, its wings beating. The exterior of the lit house again. Returned to the man in medium close-up. The dead man on the bed in a forensic-like photo, but a live hedgehog is on the mattress, nosing about. It was preceded by the old fo photograph, and then go to him, and he's also dead. In this film, they have this one clip they play both mm -hmm. backwards and forwards, where it's of this old silent film it's clearly like 20s because it has that sort of 20s mm -hmm. keaton era kind of makeup where it's first played of the man looking up and he looks really kind of sad and after the thing is flung into the man's face the footage is played again but either reverse or played forward where the man looks down mm -hmm. with the same sort of sad regretful expression then yeah. you cut to the footage of the man in the bed with okay. the hedgehog. And there's also a book in the corner of a bed, but I couldn't make out what the title of it was. Well, it wouldn't make any difference because it would have been in Russian, and you don't know Russian. And so then you've got the hedgehog on the bed, nosing about. Suicide hedgehog. Now, Fortitude, 1988, the same year as Suicide Monsters. A hall filled with water. A man lies on the floor. Another man enters and lights a cigarette. We see they are... Two men, actually, wrapped in a sheet binding them together. The other man lies alongside them. A man taps a frog with a stick. We see he is in a flooded hall. Two men beyond him appear, taking something out. We see the smoking man. Another man crawls in. He spits out what he's eating. The smoking man stands. Three men run into the hall, two of them grappling at the third, whose head is bandaged. Two men grappling him are nude. A shot of the frog. The smoking man stands before two other men. He hits one. The body's on the floor. A third body is pulled next to the other two. The men in the hall grapple each other. The nude men run. One of the other men runs. And then a photo of school children. There is already a bit of a tonal shift between these two films mm -hmm. because they're both silent, but... Yeah, you're talking about between... The shift between Suicide Monsters and Fortitude. No, 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 no. Um, well, Suicide Monsters also. The comedy starts to decrease. Oh, okay. Where Suicide Monsters, it's actually a kind of creepy feeling movie. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's completely silent. You can only hear like the film grain. And the way the actors are made up, it's all really kind of creepy and off-putting. Well, I have to say that, I mean, the shot that they have of the house, that in itself is a tonal shift. It's completely different. That is not like anything, if I remember correctly, that we had previously. There's usually been the focus on all these antics and the men running yeah. around and beating each other and all of this and uh, the intercut stuff. Now we had this shot 
setting up a situation. In fact, it is so different. I didn't expect an establishing shot. I didn't expect a story to follow like we were going to go into the house with the light. In a normal film, you show a house with light, you expect something to happen like that. The person's going to approach the house or you will go into the house. You didn't have that previously with these films. You mm -hmm. could show anything and you didn't expect anything connected to follow. I did not expect to go into the house and that's what I mean by that is different. And the stuff that happens doesn't even really feel like antics as much. Like No, it's not antics. Because the, the shot with the man with the boiling water, that's actually played in slow motion. And same yeah. with the footage of the school children, while the rest of it yeah. is played in regular speed. It all has a more kind of eerier feel to it. Fortitude looked like it was almost kind of filmed off a TV screen. You could see like the sort of banding from a screen coming here and there. Well, do you think that is the version that was put on YouTube? No, I think that was in the movie because oh, really? there were several um, Soviet experimental films where they would film stuff directly off okay. of TV. I don't remember Fortitude that well. I do remember thinking while we were watching it, I was thinking that with the flooded hallway, certain things to do with the flooded hallway, we're starting to get into Tarkovsky territory. Uh, suddenly, there was a little hint of Stalker that really comes in strong later. Okay? With Knights of Heaven, which comes immediately which, which afterward. Which is immediately afterward, an 18-minute long movie in 1989. A total tonal shift also. Yeah. A lake with the sun winking in it. So you have the shot of the lake, but oh. you have it where the camera pans from the lake to the painting that is on the Mazala film logo. So yeah. they have the painting right That's next to the true. lake. That's true. I'd forgotten about that. Then we see an official photo of a man... And then he's in bed. And then we have dialogue. The experiment has a long history of preparations. Its role in the world politics was crucial. I'm sorry, but, you know, the translation here. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the translations especially, like, by the time of Silver Heads, it's almost impossible to read because of the subtitles. Uh-huh. And this is all going on with the man in bed. We hear this over the man in bed. It's this, like this a... footage of the man in bed. It's like a sort of government film almost. Uh-huh. Lives of millions of people depended on the attempt of this unusually brave and important attempt. A group of military mountain climbers and a highly secret brigade were participating in this expedition. These two groups had to join each other in the mountains and with combined forces had to finish the experiment which besides fulfillment of the main course would become one of the most important achievements of military mountain climbing. The most brave Pure, trusted, and courageous people were chosen for this task. Mutual aid, self-sacrifice, heroism, and desire to win were the basic principles on which this unique secret experiment was based. Millions of people with hearts full of hope were waiting for the results. And then we see the man in the bed has been progressively tied up with sheets. Cut to a man by a well, saying, It's an experiment. There's also like this photo that comes in of several soldiers against some kind of transportation vehicle. Okay. I can't quite tell what it is yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say every, I, I didn't record everything that was yeah. in it. He can't speak about it now, but he will be able to later. Trust me, he says. Then he decides to tell the person. Cut to a man in a military uniform in a barn saying that he must finish the experiment now. That the delay of a month will lead to failure of the whole research program. A man replies he's hungry and wants to go eat. A fire is tended. A man eats. Another man is working on something, scraping at it. 
we see they are in a house. Oh, in so his films, you always have these rough kind of sheds, barns, yeah. and now suddenly they're inside a house. This is a really nice place. So this is totally different when you're suddenly inside this place that has high ceilings and, you know... A fireplace. And a fireplace and all that. A man looks out the window at the moon. Someone says, we have to wake up. It's time to go. See the fire again. The man eating. The man scraping at something. Unintelligible speech as the man continues to eat. We see a body next to a lake. Men stomp by. A man at the well. We see in the distance two men coming up behind him. A log hangs over his head. One man says, are we going to the mountains? We can't, according to the instructions. We have to separate and meet in two days. A man in glasses tells him to stop it. Something unintelligible. Cut to a girl in glasses and ponytail lying on the ground. A man approaches behind her. She looks up. In the next shot, she seems dead, and he's dragging her away. That we do actually have a woman, and she's killed immediately. The hulk of a large abandoned building in the background. We see the well again, and it has the girl's shoe floating in it. And then another one of her shoes we see. The two men. One of them says, it's better this way. Maybe she didn't know? One of them says, and the other one says, but if she did, then one of them says, good, son, S-U-N. I don't know what's happening with the translation there. Maybe the sun comes out. Maybe that's what I didn't, I should have made a note of it. The film, the sun comes out in the film. (laughs) The translation's just so But it may, that may, I didn't take, these are rough notes that I took while watching. So it may be that the sun came out and he said, oh, good, you know, and then looked up and the sun was coming out. No, no, no. I actually, I remember that scene very well. They're like standing in a tree and you never see the sun come up. So I have no clue what was up with that. A man walks across a bridge towards others. Oh, and I started getting such a Tarkovsky feeling here. A car passes by. There's a lot of... Oh, this scene! I love this scene Uh so much. It is so great. It's three minutes of a man walking down this bridge. He but, takes his time with it, just this luxurious time of going across the bridge. You have snow falling in the direction of wet, the camera. Very wet snow. And you have a car drive in the direction uh-huh. of the camera at one point. You hear this sort of distant radio transmission. Yeah. Almost. You and hear like this felt, voice. It felt so stalkerish. And the man who is, you know, in the scene, he looks so much like the writer, you know? Yes, he does. He his looks, face is a little bit different, but he's wearing the same trench coat. The same kind of coat, everything. The he's, same sort of same, handling, almost yeah. even, you know? Oh, the same kind of handling, the way that he wears the coat, the way that he walks. Everything is... He adjusts his coat at one point, and yeah. he walks from this bridge onto a road and yeah. into the forest. And this scene is just incredible. This yeah. scene and technically the last scene of the film are both just fantastic. He walks off the street into the woods. Another man in a dilapidated building is pulling something out of his pocket as the other man stands outside watching. The man from a bridge. The one who crossed the bridge. The man takes off his coat. He approaches what appears to be a person lying on a window ledge and wraps up their head with a bandage. The person, who wears glasses, is injured. They both climb out the window. The man from the bridge watches. A shot of the wall's surface as we hear the man outside walking past. That's just it. We hear the man outside. The camera tracks along the wall. It's a little bit like that one scene in Stalker where they lose one of the guys and you have this long shot where it goes across one of the parts of the zone and they come out and the guy's just on the other end. It's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful shot and it's so atypical of what they've done before. Oh yeah. Yeah. The pacing in this is such an opposite because they go from zany silent comedy to this slow burn. And there's also, there's sound with this one, but it's all 
Foley audio. Yeah. He passes the window. We see the other man pulling away the injured man. A lake. Has the other man drowned the injured man? It's a man in uniform, and he's carrying a doll. He chases after several other men in the woods. Back to the man from the bridge climbing up inside the dilapidated building and watching the man outside dragging along the injured man next to the lake. He drops him down inside a hole as the man with the doll approaches. And the man with the doll says, They deflowered me, the bastards. My purity is gone. I can't be in the experiment. And the other man tells him to go on without him. The second man goes down into the hole and pushes the ladder away that was inside it. The military man throws some logs in the hole, and then there's an explosion. His pants dropping, he runs off to chase someone else in the distance. The man from the bridge pursues them all. Was that a voice or a title card? It was, it was the, a title card. It was the second day of spring. There was a joyful revival by the sea. And then we see little girls in beaches sitting on a beach by the sea. Two girls stand in the middle of the circle of children. The two girls are hula dancing. I mean, it's a remarkable film. You've got such a switch in pace, such a switch as far as how the cinematography is done. You suddenly have characters. You're following characters. One reason I've not worried too much about describing things in terms of a man did this, a man did this, a man did this, is because it really didn't matter who these men were. Mm -hmm. It's more what they were doing. You d it wasn't a character. Even with um, Werewolf Orderlies, none of these were really characters. It was just people doing. Now suddenly, beginning really with suicide monsters, in which you have the person who ends up being killed in his bed with this contraption, you start getting some characters. In this one especially, you still have the whole idea of a man does this, a man does this, a man does this, and it really doesn't matter who's doing what except that now you start to develop some characters. The this man is, in the coat that crosses the bridge. And once again, this was the first film that Vladimir Maslov wrote. He co-wrote a dialogue, but I believe he had more involvement with script than that. He didn't co-direct, but he did act in it as the man who was raped. You have some more recurring actors in this one from here on out, because you can recognize some of the actors in this and Father Frost, and I believe even in The Wooden Room. And they wear less makeup also. They don't wear the corpse makeup here That's anymore. That's true. They don't have like the sort of sense of exaggerated decay anymore if he's characters. It's no longer like that kind of vaudeville... Dancing zombie kind of. Vaudeville is probably the wrong word to use. Performative. But... Like just yeah, uh -huh. over the top, the... silent comedy yeah, kind of thing. Uh-huh. And now we go into my favorite one. Daddy, Father Frost is dead. That's your favorite one. My favorite one, I think, is The Wooden Room. So this one is ostensibly based on Leo Tolstoy's story. The Family of the Vordelac. Vordelac. And to give a brief idea of the story, a young French diplomat goes finds himself in a suburb in, in a suburban village. No, it's a Serbian village. He a Serbian the host is absent at this house. He left the house 10 days beforehand to hunt an outlaw. He told his family before he left that they were to wait for him for 10 days, and 10 days sharp, and if he returned a moment later, they were to kill him because he would be a vampire. He would not be a man any longer. The marquee, the day comes for him to leave, and it's the 10th day of the man's absence. The family is waiting for the patriarch to appear, and he finally does on the road at 
eight o'clock in the evening, exactly on the time that he left, 10 days beforehand. And now the problem is, it's like the stroke of midnight. Is it the time beforehand or the time afterwards? They don't know since he appears right at that precise moment whether he's to be considered a vampire or not. And they decide to let him live. One of the members of the family dies inexplicably. The French diplomat leaves and he continues his travel. He returns half a year later and he finds the village is abandoned and he goes to the house to stay the night. The daughter is there who he was attracted to on his first visit and she is the only person who's living there. He realizes that she's a vampire. He manages to make a miraculous escape. Some cult fans may recognize that this story was actually the basis for a vignette in the Mario Bava film Black Sabbath, uh, starring Boris Karloff. It was an anthology, and one of the stories was adapted from that Tolstoy story. Fowler Frost is Dead is based loosely on the story, and it's also described as being based partially on the story of the country mouse and the city mouse. Sort of skimming through the basic of what Faber Frost's Dead is about. Going in order of what's basically narrative, the film follows this man who is writing a story about... It's either a tree mouse or a shrew, depending on the translation. Mm -hmm. He's writing a story about a tree mouse, and he's going out to the countryside to see his cousin, who now has a family. He wakes up to the sound of Morse code. Yes. He wakes up to the sound of Morse code and he has a phone call where he talks about how he's going out there. So he boards on a train to the countryside and there are already some pretty strange people around. There's already some pretty strange people in the train alone. He makes it to the countryside and he sees a group of suited men huddled around a person completely wrapped up in what's basically a body bag of bandages. Um, it reminds me a little bit that part of the train... Jim Jarmusch's dead man, Johnny Depp, the character he plays, he's this urban person who's going out west and a totally bizarre train ride. I wasn't reminded when I was watching the film, but uh -huh. your description of it reminded me. Okay, go on. Uh, the main character, he sees the suited men leave. The man goes to tend to the body. Despite the fact that the person looks like they're wrapped up in a body bag, they're actually alive. They're bound up. And he undoes the person's bindings, and the first thing the person talks about is how cold things are. A woman, yeah. Yeah, it's a the woman. woman. He asks her, what happened to you? But she doesn't answer. They walk together. They, they walk, walk together, together where he, he goes to the house, and then she goes away. So he makes it to the house, and there is his cousin. But he doesn't see his cousin first, but instead his cousin's wife. He, he is let in, and he meets up his cousin, and... His whole family are just weird. Yeah. They're all just bizarre. They talk strange. There's this whole scene where they're seated by a window. The wife comes in at one point. The son comes in. And they just stare at him. Like, well, he doesn't do a too brilliant a job either of being conversational. He just, oh, yeah. He just kind of sits and stares back. So the grandfather of a family comes back by night. And the grandfather brings them this strange toy thing we can't quite tell what it is it is bizarre it looks like a bottle that's wrapped up in some bizarre thing with like matches sticking out of it matches aren't there in the beginning and then later when we see the boy playing with it again that's when it has matches that are stuck into it and he's setting it on fire that he, he's saying he the, set, the little matches on, he it on fire lights the matches like candles. one by one and they sizzles out and then he lights another one it sizzles out and then he lights another one the kid plays with a toy and I think at that point, the main character notices around the area 
this crippled um, burglar and his son. So the opening of a film is actually of this duo, this crippled thief and his son. They set up this sort of booby trap in this flooded house where there's a man wandering around and they set up a noose. And he, he trips over something that in the hall... And, and he's hung by the and noose. And he's hung by the noose, and they steal his pants and... His, his gloves. His, his, his stuff. His, they steal everything on yeah. him and put, pack it into a suitcase. So this this uh, burglar and his son are sort of recurring characters throughout the film. The burglar himself has a peg leg, and he's on canes, while the son... He's almost in, like, the necro-realist makeup. He has, like, dark spots around the eyes, and his hair is all disheveled. Mm. They're sort of wandering around throughout the film. The main character, he... Heads out of the house, and he finds the son of the family in a tree, and he's sleeping. And he says this weird thing about kissing his grandfather. The boy does. Yeah. Cut to the next day, and the main character is out with his cousin in the forest. And he's cutting out a stake from a tree. And the main character heads off while his cousin is cutting out the stake, and he sees the suited men swinging a stick attached to this wooden contraption and it's going back and forth it's almost making like the sort of strange metallic swinging sound and the main character you know he's sort of freaked out by this and he leaves cut to a bit later and you have the wife with the same stick and she throws it in a lake and watches it uh sail away cut back to the house the main character walks in to find his cousin Shaking at this metallic structure while screaming steak, steak, steak over and over again. Wife comes in, the cousin throws his wife to the floor, and eventually the main character comes in and his cousin stops. He pulls away the metal structure to reveal that his son is dead. And then immediately afterward he grabs his cousin and starts screaming, old man, like the old man had killed the boy. They hold a little funeral for the son. They put him in this tree coffin that's like the body of a tree hollowed out. They put the weird toy thing in with him. And with this other man whose head is all bandaged up, they hold this little burial service where they take him to an artificial cave made out of logs. And it sort of gives off the image of all these coffins piled up, these tree coffins. Almost forms like this sort of log cabin looking thing. They put the child's coffin in there with the rest of it and they leave and the old man is sleeping at the top of this cave with a gun we cut back the main character is by a window and he's looking at a book with images of what's either tree mice or shrews i can't quite tell exactly and he hears the sound of glass breaking in another room he gets up and one of the doors swings open and his cousin walks out completely naked and there's another naked man with him who just sort of walks back and forth cousin drinks from a kettle they share this really awkward glance and the main character flees he wakes up in the forest and he has a toothache and so he goes to the dentist's office this is where my favorite part of the film really starts up this whole climax is just incredible. So the main character goes to the dentist's office, and there you have Vladimir Mozlov, his second acting role in a UFIT film, as the dentist. So the main character seats himself down, but the dentist, instead of operating on him, talks about his plan to find the answer to the unknown by bringing all the villagers of this you oh. oh, you have it written down. Once again, the translation is wanting. Have you ever thought what is the unknown? Searching for the answer to this question brought to an opposite result. 
That's the translation. Yeah, it's, okay? it's kind of broken. The man asks, opposite to what? And the dentist says, that is what we must find out by common efforts. If everyone joins hands and falls face down, then change in position of bodies will occur. Frequent change in bodies can indicate anything, therefore including the answer. And if, while laying on the floor, rolling over each other, it increases the chance of knowing the unknown. It all depends on the number falling. The more, the louder. It increases confidence. And here I'm paraphrasing. The important thing is not to draw attention to death of the lying beside and to keep on rolling his corpse. I think what he means like is to not pay attention to the death to the dead men around yeah. you. Life is in the motion. That's what he ends with. And so the dentist stuffs the main character's mouth of gauze and leaves the room. The main character, while seated in the dentist's chair, notices out the window the suited men all gathering up around the building of the Those suited men are great. Oh, they are incredible. They are wonderful. Okay, go on. Then I'll, so, I'll mention one of my favorite scenes. The main character is in the dentist's chair, and he notices a door in the building open, and staring directly at him is the grandfather. The main character freaks out, and he flees. When he opens the door trying to escape, the suited men are all out there waiting for him. They grab him, they pull him down. They hustle him around, they pull off his pants, I don't know why, they take the gauze in his mouth and they wrap it around his head. I assume that's almost like they're sort of binding of him like they bound the they woman bound earlier. They bound the woman, like when he arrived and he asked the woman, what happened? Yeah. And so they bind him and they leave. The main character regains his wits and he's just sort of like, what, what happened to me, you know? They just bind him in this mm -hmm. weird position. The main character... Heads out. He tries to find a way out of this messed up countryside. And he eventually finds an abandoned train. Like the train that he came in on. He boards the train and there's, there's no one. There's nobody on it. And he takes the seat of the man driving the train. And so he flips the train on and he falls asleep. So the man in the train, he's trying to stay awake but he ends up falling asleep. You cut back to the burglar and his son and they're nearby the train track. They're just sort of sitting there looking completely depressed just like every other character in the film, and they hear the train approaching. The burglar himself stays while the son takes off his suit and his shirt, and he runs to the train track and lays himself down on the train track. The main character wakes up too late, and the train runs over the kid. You don't see it on screen. There's no graphic violence in the film. The burglar watches and listens as the train leaves and realizes that his young accomplice is dead. You cut back to the river with a stake floating through it, and the camera pans down to reveal one of the photos of the main character was looking at of wildlife while researching for his paper on shrews or tree mouses or whatever. And then a towel card pops up saying, soon it was cold. And then the last shot of the film. <laughs> oh boy. So, it sounds completely boring when you describe it, but it's incredible. It's this completely silent shot of all the suited men walking down a hill. It's an incredible shot. Through these denuded trees, no leaves on them, but it's not like woods. You don't have any debris on the ground from mm -hmm. the trees. You don't have branches lying around. It's just these tall, upright, straight trunks of trees with denuded branches, and they appear at the top of the shot, and then they walk down. Just before the scene where the main character is trying to escape the vicinity, just after he got his head wrapped up, you cut back to the Morse code. 
you see this guy and you hear the Morse code. You cut to the interior of this house and you see a man who looks a lot like one of the suited men seated at this transmitter laying out the Morse code. He starts to receive Morse code and at that moment another man comes in. Yes. They're seated in front of this uh, dresser. They take the dresser, they remove everything from it, they take out all the shelves, they turn it over as a table, and one of the men... There were a bunch of newspapers in it. Yeah. They take so out. So they take out all the newspapers, they remove all the shelves, turn it over to make it a table, and you see in one of the other rooms a pot filled with boiling water. Mm-hmm. So the man who was at the transmitter, he runs to give a pot of boiling water while the man who walks in lays down on the ground, and, he, and the first man splashes the boiling water right in the man's face, he does this weird, almost sort of like spazzing out, kind of like he kind of loses control of his body for a moment. He makes this weird face and he contorts, and it's basically a mirroring of one of the scenes from Suicide Monsters. It's the very opening scene of Suicide Monsters. I'm wondering, like, if a whole one of the aspects was that the main character was almost sort of awakened and drawn to the place by the Morse code. It could be, but you know what I was also thinking? What? Something in the wooden room made me think this as well is that when the city man wakes up... In the very opening? At the very opening. Before this, we see the scene with the man who is tripped and is hung by this device that the thief and the boy leave, and them taking his clothes and everything. And then suddenly, cut to the city man, and he wakes up. But the way that he wakes up, it made me feel like it was a sense of, was this something that he was dreaming? Now, I'm not saying that this is actually a dream but I think there is something there to be considered because the boy and the man pretty much disappear throughout the entire film you wonder what they had to do with anything it doesn't return to them at all until the very end when the man is fleeing the city once again he falls asleep and when does he wake up he wakes up when the train runs over the boy. Well, right, right before. Yeah. Uh, but it's unclear on that. It's like, how much of the boy does he see? He sees the boy, but he wakes up just in time to understand that the train is running over the boy. To me, it felt like it circled back around to his waking up from whatever it is that shocked him and startled him awake. It felt like a recycling of that. Was it a dream of this boy? You, then you consider what exactly does that mean concerning this film? Several things about Father Frost is Dead. First mm-hmm. of all, complete shift from all the other Necrorealist films who, mm-hmm. where they would either be completely silent or they would have some music. Like, even in Knights of Heaven, you did have the sound of a woman singing at the very opening mm-hmm. when the guy's talking. Yeah. When the man who looks like the poet from Stalker is talking. In this one, there is no music whatsoever. Nothing. There is audio, but the audio is very sparse. It's all incidental audio. And while there is a good deal of dialogue in Knights of Heaven, in this film, it's an hour and 20 minutes, and there's roughly about maybe five to ten minutes of dialogue at most. One of my favorite shots in this one yeah? is when all the suited men are standing out in this field, and there's this tripod there. Oh, yeah, that, that one. And there's, it's absolutely nonsensical. And we're swinging like the, the plank bond, of wood there, between there's it. A, there's a plank of wood hanging from the tripod, you know, in the center of it, and they're just swinging mm-hmm. the plank of wood. And they're not even technically swinging it. There's actually a man directly behind it who's the yeah. one moving it around. And that's all that's happening. Like I said, he has a way of keeping these things riveting, where uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. And it's not your traditional narrative. With the traditional narrative, you can kind of, sometimes with a film, you can 
zone out because you know what's going to happen and you, you don't have to see every single shot. The way that most films are made, they're filled with a lot of unintentional shots. Yeah. They don't have to be there. They actually don't mean anything or do anything. They show a person's expression maybe, but the, but you'll have already seen the person's expression how many times. They'll show a room that you've seen many times. It really doesn't give you any more information. It's and not, Robert Frost, every and, shot gives away something new. It's, it's Even just, if it's just a nice looking yeah. landscape or something, like there's like a lot of great landscape stuff that like yeah. you mentioned, you love the window shots in this a lot. Oh, those window shots are the best window shots I've ever seen. Where in a the film. main character would be sleeping by the window or reading by the window. It's raining outside now. Maybe you'll, you're going to hear the rain. The way that you have a landscape shot through a window, there is a separation yeah. that happens between the interior and exterior that is completely different from what happens here. The way that Ufit shoots it is that you have it kind of in a diagonal. Instead of shooting it straight on or at a sort of angle, you have sharp angle to the window. Where the camera's window. almost like partway out of the window. You're partly in the landscape. And partly not. You're partly you're in the partly room. you're partly in the room. It is such a novel way of doing a window shot. It's just beautiful. And it's haunting. And they reminded me, those shots, for some reason in particular, reminded me of the old film Vampire. Oh, yeah. Well, it had, a, it had an atmosphere a bit like that, where yeah. it's almost a vampire story, but it's a very yeah. non-conventional one. And you even have the sense almost of, like, possibly the man who's enabling the vampires. Because in Vampire, you have the old doctor yeah. who is supplying the victims for a vampire wall. In this, you have the dentist who almost feels like he could be partly involved with the bizarre stuff in the town. But I'm talking about, like... A kind of atmosphere to Oh, the I know, I know, that too. There, but There's something, especially with those window shots, there's something with the man, it's like as he sits and he reads the book in, in, front, of one of the, in front of the window in one of the shots, which yeah. is not, it, it is not one of those diagonal window, window shots. You see the window beyond, mm -hmm. but it's just as marvelous, just as marvelous a shot. Just... And it, especially then, there was something about it where I felt like I was watching Vampire. Yeah, it definitely has that feel, and Yevgeny Ufit, with his films, he always aimed for an atmosphere where the films feel a lot older than they are. That is the one thing that I really started thinking about with uh, The Wooden Room. He made this change from certain shots in earlier films that would have been old stock footage. No, we're not watching stock footage. This is footage that they did specifically for this film, and so you've got other bizarre elements in what you're watching. But it feels like you're watching stock footage. The thing about Father Frost also is with this, you start to notice some recurring motifs, but they're heavily recontextualized in that it well, takes elements of the shorts and puts a proper narrative around them. Like, you were talking about character stuff earlier. There are some real dynamic character roles in this film. Yes, there are. But you start to notice certain things where basically, um, film had certain elements of suicide, monsters, and fortitude. And they were put into this more elaborate, further context with the Tolstoy narrative, the eerie atmosphere set in this isolated countryside, the way everything is recontextualized. It really gives this new sort of feeling to these scenes. They are, to some extent, revisions of stuff from earlier shorts. Re-envisioned. That's one thing that you had already these things that were themes. But with Maslow becoming involved... Who, this time, he didn't only just write the script and act in it, but he also co-directed with Ufit. It's like adding a new dimension to them, which we, we will really get into with The Wooden Room. 
One thing I wanted to say before we move on is because I know at the very beginning I said that I was in a situation when I was five years old where there was this person who had pictures of murdered people on the walls. I was reminded because of the vampires. He had a vampire fixation. I made that sound in a way spookier than it should be. What it was, it was the brother of a babysitter that I had. It was their house and her younger brother his walls were lined with these pictures. You know, of course, they were very spooky to me. And then later, when I returned, it re I was reminded of the vampire because when I saw them again several years later, his teeth had rotted. He had dentures. He was very young. He was a teenager. Okay. But, it, but he had dentures. And these were real dentures. He took them out, I saw. But his dentures that he had made to replace his teeth, they were vampire teeth. They were fangs. Oh my! Yes, that, that, that's a very necrophilic sounding my, yes, scenario. That was my babysitter's brother. I'm trying to remember anything else about Everfrost that I'd want to bring up. Despite the fact that there's no music, I'm amazed with the sound design of this film, and the sound design of the other feature they did, The Wooden Room. But unfortunately, between these two films, you have one little bump in the road. And we're going to only mention this film briefly before we go into The Wooden Room, and we're just going to say it feels like reused. Ben Vare done that. Ben Vare done that. It was a 1994 film. We're returning to some of the old necrorealism. Let's skate over that. It's caught between this awkward period because on one end you have the early necrorealist shorts, which had at least some level of like irony or comedy, black humor. All to of them. that is gone. It's yeah, a, it's, it's trying to be like the features, which it are feels serious, like an empty shell. Yeah, but it's just kind of you know it just kind of happens in the aesthetic really isn't there as much you know the it yeah. almost looks like it was shot on digital video and so and the other thing if it's just more or less a context issue the film was shown not with russian titles but german subtitles and the film was called the will masloff involved with this one at all no, no. he okay. wasn't when you see the will in german you do kind of think of nazism and the film has nothing to do with nazism but still i remember so little of it having watched all these films in the past two weeks, that one has completely slipped my mind, and it's embraced on either side by Daddy, Father Frost is Dead, which is a powerful film, and then The Wooden Room, which is a very powerful film. And I'll so let you talk the will about that one. has just disappeared in my head. It, it's gone. I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, uh, well, I've right. been there, done that, over and gone. I'll let you talk about The Wooden Room, because The Wooden Room actually... It takes certain elements that are like the few original aspects of the will and does what I think Yevgeny Yufit wanted them to be. Because I almost believe that with the will, I think that was possibly because the one room had German financers. It was shown with both German and Russian credits. Mm -hmm. I believe that the will may have been made as like some kind of proof of concept to German distributors or financiers to be involved with the making of the wooden room. That's uh my theory, though. From the beginning, it's a completely different film, and you start dealing with a feminine aspect here, which we really haven't done before. You've had a couple of women in the films, but you haven't had a woman really figure as a prominent character. But it opens up first with seeing a man from behind, but you don't know it's a man. You see the long hair. When I see long hair, I don't expect it to be a woman. Well, I it mean, can, look at me. Yes. Well, uh -huh. you, can, well you're not, you can't look at me because it's a podcast. I've, always, I've always lived with men around men who have long hair. But in context of Youth's work, 
this is different. You expect it to be a woman. He expects the audience to think it's a woman. Let me put it that way. But it's Vladimir Maslov but, playing. But it's Vladimir Maslov. The lead role, and which is great. And he turns around, and he's a filmmaker. Now, see, this is what's wonderful about this film, is, as has been done many times. You've got a film, somebody making a film. So you have both the making of the film and the film itself. But it's not done like a contrived way, like some it's, of those hackney student films or anything. Like. It's an interesting thing where it, it takes the necrorealist stuff and recontextualizes it where it's a necrorealist depiction of the making of a necorealist film. Well, you've always had this kind of drudgery, this oldness to everything, an alien sense of everything. Everything has always felt alien in his films and kind of removed by that sense of the alien. And that disappears with this film by virtue of the filmmaker because you have the film that's being... Basically being edited. Well, you have all the technical stuff around. And the projector and the film reels and everything else. And you the have film a room that's, where the film, film that's being developed and the film that's being dried. Mm -hmm. uh, you have all the different technical aspects. Even with just that, you get the intelligence of the person Behind who's the making the film. The film that's being made has some of the themes of the necrorealism. It has um, this almost stock-looking footage of a beaver. He goes from that to what's essentially the main picture. But you've got this separation at first, because he, he ends up blending into what happens in the film. You've got the sense of intelligence behind the making of these films. And that was really interesting to do after watching all these necrorealist films to suddenly have a person behind the camera. Although we never see the camera, we only see the film. And actually, when we're watching, we see the, this man, he's acting in the film itself. You know that you are watching the film when you hear a projector, you hear the sprockets, all that. And he's acting in the film. There's that relationship there. And who's filming him? Because you almost get the feeling when you're watching him working with the film that he should be doing all of this that this is his film. He should have been the one who is filming it. He should have been the cinematographer. But instead, he appears in the film. And he's living with his wife who develops the film with him? She is a companion in that way. And it kind of explores the relationship with her. It explores male-female. It explores masculine relationships and the feminine pertaining to the masculine as far as what's feminine and masculine traits. What are people's expectations? And it's not exaggerated, really, at all. It's very, no, it's not of, exaggerated. It's very mute. At the very beginning of the film, his, his, his hair is loose. Then his hands reach back. We see it's a man's hands. It's a man's rough hands. He puts his hair in a ponytail. And at the very end of the film, a man takes out the rubber band so his hair falls loose again and then puts a flower wreath on his head. And the man who does that is from one of his own movies. And you have things in here that are being recycled from the earlier films. This one takes some elements from uh, Spring. So much of it has to do with the relationships of men, because in this they are put in positions such as washing each other. It's not just all the battering and bludgeoning. You, and you end up also having boys play, and you realize, okay, you've got the same dynamics. What is play? What is power? What is aggression? Well, let's look at this a little bit more chronologically. So 
we see the man, we see the, the dark room situation, we see that he's working on a film of beavers, we see the drawing of the film, the sound of the film running distinguishes between his reality and the film. Uh, once again, it's filled with wood. We have a man splitting wood. We see a man that was lying beside water. Right before that, we see then a boy pushes the man into the water. I mean, he's lying beside the water, and then the boy comes along what lo looks like just a body, and he pushes the body into the water. And then we have these two men, an older man and a kind of middle-aged, slightly younger man, standing in the water, washing each other, just washing each other. They're not fighting. They're not doing anything like that. They're just washing each other. Then we watch other footage of the older man who had been in the lake committing suicide with the same kind of ladder device between two trees that was in which other fi older film? Spring. That was in Spring. Then we see several boys playing, roughhousing. That fo is followed by the filmmaker lying down to sleep with this woman, and he runs his hand along her back. In the morning, she has her glasses on, and she's looking through a book at a table with him. They're drinking tea or coffee. Then she gets up, and she walks away. We see stuff being thrown out of a shed, all this stuff, and then we see that she's the one who's doing it. And there are all these cut logs lying around. She goes down to the water to seemingly get water, She's carrying this pail, and she comes across the man lying on the shore, the same body. She looks disturbed by this. Then uh, she's returning to the house, and she has an accident. At first glance, it looks like she just trips over something in, in her path, and she falls and hits her head, and she dies. But on second watching, on second review, it looks like, was this put there intentionally? Like with the man in the beginning of... Daddy, Father Frost is dead, where the man is walking along, and he falls, and he trips into the noose that hangs him. You even have, like, a bell sound accompanying the time when she trips. And so it seems that this was done intentionally. Next shot we see she's lying in a bed. We think maybe, well, maybe she's not dead after all. The filmmaker is sitting there cutting on and off a light. Then he covers up her head with a sheet, and we realize that she is dead. He goes to sleep. He dreams of a bell that he digs up from the ground. He sees men in suits in a big hall, and on the stage there's a man who's playing a drum. And this is the one that made me think, oh wow, you know, this looks like it should be like old footage. But it's not. It's footage that's made for the film, and there's a dead man lying beside a podium. Remember that shot? Oh yeah, that. That's one of right. the ones where it really looks like um, uh -huh. older footage, like yes, the kind of stuff that he would edit into his movies. Then we see the woman again. The woman is running into a barn away from the man chasing her who had been earlier in the water with the person who could have been his father. Who knows who he was? The two babies each other. The, he's running after her, and she runs into the barn. She shuts the door, cut back to this hall where you had all these men, all these men in suits, and they are running out a door. What happens is he opens the, the door, and they start running out toward him. Right. And, you, and the man who's, uh, there's this man on the podium playing the drum, and he points one of the and things. And he points to the door. And then you have, it cuts back to uh, the man outside the barn, where the woman is stuck inside the barn. Only this time, he's trying to keep the door closed. She had run in there, but now he's trying to keep the door closed with somebody inside, presumably her, trying to get out. And what he does is he puts a pitchfork underneath the, the handle of the door and lies down so that 
when the door is opened. We don't see who opens the door. It could have been could be these men from the dream running outside. The pitchfork goes through his neck and kills him. The men who are in that hallway, they kind of resemble the men from Father Frost is Dead, the pack of suited men. Yeah, who go they around. don't really look like them, but the feel. Feel is the same of all those men that were in that field. As soon as the man is killed, the pitchfork goes through his neck. The filmmaker wakes up. So this has been a dream. I returned to City Man waking up at the very beginning of Daddy Father Frost is Dead, where we had just had the man who tripped in the hall and was hung. And then at the end of the film, he wakes up again just in time to see the boy run over by the train. So now he attempts to commit suicide. He goes outside with a dog. First he pitches rocks to get the dog to chase after the rocks. And then he does this arrangement where he's tied up in such a way where if he throws the rock, he's supposed to end up being hung. Because he puts the, this rope around right. the dog's body. So the dog isn't killed, but, but when so the dog the, runs, it hangs him. Right. When the dog runs after the rock, he's supposed to be hung by the dog running after the rock. But that And it's a little happen. bit like how in Woodcutter you would see like these people being dragged around by rope. Because right. he was supposed to be dragged by the dog's corpse basically. Then, after this fails, he hears the bell, and he chases after the man in the woods who is carrying the bell, and he comes upon several men resting by the water, one of them being the man who had been in the water earlier with the older man. So you've got several men, like three, three men or so? Yep. Yeah, or four who are down there by the water. I think one of them was one of the boys also. He stands there staring at them, and this is the end of the film. The man who had been with the older man in the water. The one who uh, was killed in the previous dream. The, the man who was killed in the dream, but by the pitchfork. He reaches out and he removes the ponytail. The director's so that, ponytail. So that his hair falls down, and then he puts the flower wreath on his head. And that's the end of the film. It's a magnificent film. It's just amazing. IFFR gives this description from Ufit himself. There are many works of art dedicated to ecology and nature preservation, the natural surroundings of people, but the ecology of the human psyche that is influenced by contemporary circumstances is a subject that is usually ignored by art and by cinema in particular in its own way. The Wooden Room studies the negative influence of civilization on human consciousness. Now, in a way, this is so vague, it could mean anything. I as think you're getting if it's doing that on purpose, As far really. as what you're watching in the film, because there's, uh, the main, one of the main things for me was the feminine presence and that the man at the very beginning, you could interpret him as being a woman. Watching these early films, I had the feeling that you were watching a man trying to deal with how men dealt with each other, then how men deal with each other father to son, and culturally, in lateral relationships with peers, in vertical relationships, father to son to grandson, all of this. And now in a oeuvre that is pretty well absent of women, we get this woman. But more than that, we have this man who is exploring a kind of feminine aspect. And that sounds silly, I know. It sounds like it's hard to relate this because I'm not talking about just trash psychology or whatever. Uh, I'm not talking in, in terms of this, what's the feminine side of the man. And in as far as I'm concerned, everybody has mixed traits. 
I, can, I don't look upon certain things as being entirely feminine traits, and I don't look upon other things as being entirely masculine traits. I feel like it's exploring the context of women in this society. It's not as if she only ends up dead. Most of the time, all these men end up dead. But it was interesting to me how you had the men washing each other. Before, it's always been the battering. When the director lies down with his wife, and he runs his hand over her back, it brings in also with the men in the lake, and then with this, a kind of tactile element that has been lacking. This is the first time this has happened in any of the films. The sense of touch. We have not had that previously. Even with the men in the lake, yes, we have some of the touch, but in a way the water diffuses that. But when he runs his hand over her back, it's almost the first sensual, and I don't mean sexual, I mean sensual element that is brought into the films. And that's interesting to me. It feels awkward to just kind of leave it there because like I said, they're muting some of the violence. I mean, the violence is still there, obviously. The woman trips over the wire, but what kind of violence? You always have to reflect on what does the violence actually mean? These are not literal murders and these are not literal suicide. That's not what they are. You have to reflect on what this violence and what it means with these characters. You already had with the vampire film. Father Frost is dead. You already had a sense of character developing. With this one, you've got very strong characters. The filmmaker is a powerful character. He is so present. The wife is a powerful character. She also is very present. Both then, Vladimir Maslov and the woman who act in it just carry it. And then she disappears. She comes back from the lake, and with that death, she disappears. And then you, you enter into the, back into this kind of dreamlike situation of the film itself once she's gone. And it's interesting. This film features the most prominent role of Vladimir Maslov, but he's the leading actor. He takes up most of the film, and he carries it really well. You could definitely tell that he had a great deal of creative involvement, and you could see how his, his, how his influence impacted this, and Father Frost is dead. The way that he moves is very different. You feel the theatrical background, you feel all whatever work that he's done on his own before this. He's very deliberate in his presence. He is telling a story with the way that he moves, unlike with some of the other actors. And it's interesting because he works with puppets. And so, in a sense, you feel that manipulation of his body. His body doesn't look like a puppet. It doesn't look like he is somebody who is moving a puppet. But you have the deliberateness. Somebody who understands physical movement and understands using it to communicate to others. It's clear that Yevgeny Ufit and Vladimir Maslov had a great deal of influence on each other with these films. Mm -hmm. When you look on English sides of the web, and even most Russian sides of the web, he's Hardly mentioned at all. Maslow is very rarely mentioned along with Ufit. There's a really in-depth essay on the Necrorealist movement. Maslow is only mentioned, essentially, it mentions him acting in films, or it has like a photo from one of the movies with Maslow in the photo. It just says, Vladimir Maslow starring in such and such. With all the influence he clearly paid into Necrorealism, it's strange that he's almost just sort of rendered to a kind of footnote with how he's clearly impacted these movies. Vladimir Maslov died in 1998, which was one year before the release of the last film of the second wave of necrorealism, which was Silverheads. 
Silverheads is a very big disappointment in contrast with the other two features because it had a lot of potential going for it. It, once again, had some fantastic imagery like the first two features and the premise behind the narrative is really interesting. If a film was done right, it could have been a sort of theoretic Rosetta Stone of necrorealist films, especially the second wave. The whole concept binds up everything together because it's about a failed science experiment, an attempt to reunite mankind with nature by forming a race of treemen backfires. The men leading the experiments all start dying off, and there's a female scientist who is also another very prominent character. Who's the same woman who played the wife in The Wooden Room. The Wooden Room. She's, she's wonderful. Her character is easily one of the most compelling elements of Silverheads. The experiment fails, and the scientists all start to basically decay back into nature. And in the meantime, also, there is this race of pagan tree mutants wandering around the forest who are partly involved with, you know, the scientists being pulled back into nature. The problem of Silverheads is... It's almost like it's not ambiguous and absurdist and surreal enough. It's very straightforward. It lost the tension of the earlier films, and I have to admit, at one point, for a couple of minutes, I flat out fell asleep. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I think I fell asleep there. It's such a big disappointment. I really hate the fact that I didn't like it as much as I did the other films, because I love the premise, I love the setup. It's the last film that Vladimir Mazlov in. He played this second leading role as one of the scientists, and it has this cool plot point where... It's got some cool stuff to it. When you look at the scenes out of context, you think, this is going to build up to something yes. awesome. This is going to be great. When you see them isolated from the full film, you think, oh, this is this going This is going to be yeah. fantastic. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, the scientists decide they have to perform the experiments on themselves as a way to sort of declare loyalty to their own concept. So Vladimir Mazlov, he plays this one scientist, he puts himself in this wooden Iron Maiden with these walls that go in and out, and they pour wood chips in through the top of the Iron Maiden. There's a, there's a TV screen showing his face. The only problem there, is... There, there are the wooden sticks inside that are... Stabbing, stabbing him. Stabbing his body. The only problem is... For some reason, they decide to put in the most awkward moaning during the thing, and the machine goes boom, 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 boom. And so it's one of those scenes where if you're living in an apartment, you really want to turn it down so the neighbors don't get the wrong idea. There are two other really interesting scenes, and all of them involve Vladimir to some extent. Oh, I thought the one where the woman was going through the forest was really interesting. Oh yeah, that too, yeah. that too. I admit I gravitate to the scenes of Vladimir the most yeah. because out of all the necrorealist actors, he's the one I find to be the most he's interesting. He's a powerful actor. Yeah. I mean, he has such presence on screen, and he has such an empathetic presence. Mm -hmm. There's another scene where it's something where I almost think it's supposed to imply like a backstory of him being like a Siamese twin, where he's watching footage of these two Siamese twins mm -hmm. being separated, and that's also a really powerful scene on its own. I thought it was powerful when I saw it out of context, but in the context of the film, it got really stupid. The hanging scene, which is basically a lesser version of the hanging scene from the wooden room where he tries to hang himself from a dog for one crucial reason. He first sets up this sort of pulley system from a tree, and I'm sort of wondering, okay, where is this going to go? He attaches roller skates to his shoes. <laughs> roller skates where he hangs himself by rollerblading down a hill. The most tubular death you'll ever see in an Ecorealist film. Like, Whatever thing about the movie is, it has the most out of place soundtrack. It's <gasps> the soundtrack is what's amazing. <laughs> everything is so accentuated. Every single footfall, everything is 
magnified because we talked about that we thought at first we were watching a dubbed version like uh, i I, no, we were well no i think it was a a sound that was laid in no i mean like at first i thought we were watching like a dubbed version like Uh we weren't even watching the original russian version like this is some bizarre audio track they made for like some kind of forgotten cut or whatever like you had these music cues that were just so weird they had some of them had a kind of Fassbinder feel you mean more like the more atmospheric ones, yeah, like the uh-huh. flute and stuff? Yeah. I'm talking about, like, when you had the, a Seinfeld clavinet bass that, Yes, you did have that. <laughs> like, that just sort of kicked in. I almost want to lay in that audio track, because that is so bizarre. A lot of attention was given to sound, and it, it's... It's the worst kind of sound. I, and I have asked, I have said, you know, this could be a film, actually, that if you have to watch it twice, we might appreciate it more the second time around. We might go oh no now this not a matter of getting it but appreciating getting, it appreciating it getting in sync with it the um, thing is we but went I, in very open-minded we did go in very open-minded and because we, what we watched and all we were both films. watching it at the same time as we did with all these feature films we watched them all at the same time and i was sitting there thinking oh this is not this is the tension is it's is gone this is not good and then finally you said is it just me or and yeah, uh-huh, because yeah, and like, you know that something is going on with the film when you've got two people going. Well, wait a minute. We were expecting this to be. We are very like open. a masterpiece. We were expecting this to be really great, and we had read some good stuff on it. Yeah, this is the highest rate and, of Evgeny Dufit's films, and, and it even won. It even was nominated for an award at an international film festival. I think. And then we went. No, that's too bad. The main problem of a film, really, in my opinion, is that it's too straightforward. Like, you're 20 minutes into the film, and you know exactly where everything is going. That is true. Like I was talking about earlier, one of the interesting things is that you can't begin to anticipate with those earlier films what in the world is going to happen next. With this you kind of know. Okay, you have the scientists, and something's going to happen with them. They're all going to die. Oh, and there's this guy who's financing the experiments, and he's like, oh, we got to stop the tree people. Okay, we're going to try to stop the tree people, and they're all going to die. Okay, let me ask you a question. Yes? Okay, so we had we were already familiar with, familiar with all the shorts. We had, were familiar with all the previous features. We yes. watched those. We loved those. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's say this is one where it's more traditional. You can tell from where it's going, all right? Yeah. Like, they even almost have, like, a sort of kind of... uh, But it still has some of the necrorealist elements. I know, but there's even, like, this very traditional... And this is the thing where I especially realize, oh, this is, like, this is formal, where... Not formal, but, like, just almost kind of, you know, by the numbers, where there's this kid who's taken from his family by the forest people, and the forest people almost sort of initiate him into their kind as a sort of like it's like something from one of those 80s fantasy movies almost you know what i mean well what i was going to ask you is let's say that you had no familiarity with necrorealism let's say that you've heard about how great youth it is and this is your introduction to necrorealism and it's the first film of its type that you've seen and you're not used to seeing films like Ufit does. Do you think that this was done specifically for a general audience and that's why it feels off? Maybe it was because the other films are they're very niche. I mean like the thing with the other two features is 
Father Frost is Dead has barely any dialogue. Mm-hmm. The Wind Room has no dialogue at all. Mm-hmm. And the sound design is very sparse. It's the kind of thing that most people will probably tune out of like five minutes in because people are impatient nowadays. But Silver Heads, it's, it has a what you would call a regular pace. It's just sort of like, it feels so whiplash-inducing in comparison. It's just sort of like, this scene was only three minutes long? What? I feel like this was done for more for a general audience and that it was it was tempered for them. It was the pacing is for an audience that's not familiar with Ufit's films or Mosloff. The other would be too alien. And you already have enough kind of discordant elements here as far as what an audience is going to be able to relate to. It, there's a kind of enough of a sci-fi element. Yeah. where they will be engaged by a sci-fi story. It's not like the mountain climbers. It was totally nonsensical. Yeah. Here we have we have a kind of sci-fi story we that, must make that, plays, people. that plays out. I'm not talking about, Phil, your cineplexes. I'm talking mm-hmm. about people. Like people go to a film festival and be like, oh, what's this right. Silverheads film? Uh-huh. I, I wouldn't be surprised because this is the only film of you, Fitz, I know of that was nominated for an award okay. at a film festival. And it's the one that people are really crazy about mm-hmm. it's just such a discipline it left dream. me cold too man this could have been like the best necrorealism film because the plot line is such an on point because when i talked about how necrorealism was like the opposite of japanese cyberpunk this really was the mirroring of tetsuo the iron man because tetsuo the iron man is like the man is turning into metal everything is fast-paced everything's going to explode while this it could have been like the people are slowly mutating into tree humanoids and like you know not literally but you know like there's a sense of like nature decaying everything like it could have been like the perfect mirroring like if it had the pacing and the sparseness and the ambiguity and the subtlety as father frost is dead in the wooden room it could have been incredible you had some great stuff in it out of context the music was weird and the, the country music at the ending, too. I remember uh, they had this weird Soviet country song at the ending. Like, we were watching and... Oh, that, where I sat there and I went... I just heard one note and I... All it took was one note and I thought, Oh, my, are they going to play the Russian equivalent of country music? And you said the same thing right immediately after that. It was like, there was just all it took was that one note. And then, yeah, it was like they did. It was like the Russian equivalent of country music it's just weird or so it seemed you have like horns going while you have a guy going Mm -hmm. you know making these weird humming noises and like it's just so bizarre the reason i wanted to do a shot by shot description with the shorts the earlier shorts is because i wanted to give a sense of how they are put together they're not entirely random you have structure uh, you can feel out the themes as you go from film to film you see how they connect back between each other they start referring to each other and i thought that was important to do i didn't feel like sitting here and saying well this is what i think these films mean i think there are certain things that we can reflect on certain things that i can say well talking about male relationships talking about society's expectations of men talking about how men feel about themselves based on society's expectations and the expectations of their peers what does it mean ultimately to be human what does it mean ultimately to be human in your society that gives you so many ideas of what you should be as opposed to what are you and then finally 
the unexamined life. If your life is unexamined, are you asleep? If you're living your life according to everybody else's rules and regulations without questioning them, without looking at your surroundings and trying to develop your own perspective, which means removing the perspectives of others, what is expected of you. So ultimately, as with so many films, you get into the artist's exploration, his or her own unique way of going, wake up and look at yourself and the world around you and see what's actually going on and live the self-examined life. Watch for movies. They're on YouTube for free with subtitles. Watch them. Anyway, they're interesting movies. Watch them. Watch don't all be, of them except for the Will and, and Silver Heads. Watch all of them except for those two films. Don't be put off by the term re- necro-realism. Now, to end, I just wanted to say thank you for introducing me to these films. I would probably not have heard of them or watched them. Well, I would not have, if I had not heard of them, I would not have watched them. But if had it not been for you. And I really enjoyed these. I know where to find the things that people generally forget about. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Thanks. I appreciated watching these, and I'm glad you proposed doing a podcast on them.